Weekly Signals, every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. Join me, Mike Casper, and Nathan Callahan for the best in reality-based radio. That's Weekly Signals. Check out the website at weeklysignals.com. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and online at KUCI.org. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. She sits as an advisor to the State of California Office of Privacy Protection, and she's a sheriff reserve here in Orange County. She's testified many times in Congress and the California legislature on privacy and identity theft issues, and you may have seen her on TV on Dateline, 48 Hours, NBC, ABC, CNN, O'Reilly, Geraldo, Montel, a lot of other shows. And uh, she did her own 90-minute PBS special last year called Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Hey there, we have a great show tonight. A few weeks ago, Lloyd, I was on a show, a radio show myself, called Legal Talk with a fabulous speaker. We talked about the Federal Trade Commission and the Fair Credit Reporting Act and the red flag rules, and I was so impressed with how interesting and articulate he was that I begged him to be on our show, and we're so thrilled that Andrew Smith is coming on with us today. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about him, a really impressive background. Andrew Smith is a partner in Morrison and Forrester's Washington, D.C. office, so he's coming to us all the way from the East Coast. He counsels various financial institutions on the full range of consumer financial services issues, In particular, he advises clients on financial privacy issues with relation to the Fair Credit Reporting Act, which we've talked about many times, the Fair and Accurate Credits Transactions Act, which became part of the FCRA, and the Graham-Leach-Bliley Act. And he also speaks and helps and counsels about consumer lending issues under the Equal Credit Opportunity Act and state and federal laws prohibiting unfair and deceptive trade practices. And he gets this because prior to joining Morrison and Forrester, Mr. Smith served as the FACT Act, and again, that's the Fair and Accurate Credit Transactions Act, program manager in the Federal Trade Commission's Bureau of Consumer Protection, where he directed numerous rulemaking proceedings governing, among other things, the obligation of creditors and credit bureaus with respect to identity theft victims and the use of prescreen solicitation to market credit and insurance, the proper disposal of consumer information, the sharing of information among affiliated companies, and the provision of free annual credit reports to consumers. So we're going to talk about that with him as well. He has been so involved in many different things in the credit reporting industry, the Consumer Bureau, the Bureau of Consumer Protection, just so much more that we have on our website. But I just also wanted to tell you that he is a frequent speaker at conferences on privacy, data security, and the Fair Credit Reporting Act, and all sorts of issues with regard to privacy. He's involved in the American Bar Association, serving as chair of the Federal and State Trade Practices Subcommittee of the Consumer Financial Services Committee. He's also actively participating in the Privacy and Consumer Protection Committees of Antitrust and Trade Regulations section of the ABA. I get a kick out of it because he received his BA from Williams College, where my son got his MA, and then he got his JD from the College of William and Mary, and he he's admitted to practice in Virginia and the District of Columbia, and he's wonderful. And I want to thank you, Andrew. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks very much for having me, Mari. A nice introduction, if I do say so myself. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I couldn't have said it better. <laughs> well, I could have even gone more. You had so much more, but right. I, I wanted to get into talking with you. And, and I should tell my audience there's a lot more about him. 
at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy right on our website and also at mofo.com, which is the website for his for the law firm in which he is a partner. So let's get started. First of all, what was it like working at the Federal Trade Commission? Well, the Federal Trade Commission was a great experience for, for me, and it was an interesting time to be there. I started with when the prior administration had just uh, come in, had just arrived. And so this was probably June of 2001, and I was hired to assist at that time the director of the Bureau of Consumer Protection, a fellow named Howard Beals, um, who you probably know, Mari, who um, wanted some help with these consumer financial services issues, which, as well as the financial privacy issues, which, as you probably know, are classically complicated. There are many of these statutes, like the Fair Credit Reporting Act or the Truth in Lending Act, are very, very complicated, and they're not really within the FTC's, the Federal Trade Commission's traditional wheelhouse. I mean, they, the, the FTC is used to bringing a lot of fraud cases, and that's not really what we have with statutes like the Fair Credit Reporting Act or Truth in Lending. And these are much more technical statutes, and there are many more issues that are kind of around the edges and are interpretive in nature. And so I started in 2001, and about that same time, as you will recall, uh, the Fair Credit Reporting Act had some important preemptions that were expiring. And in order to preserve these state law preemptions, industry went to Congress and said, we really need to update the Fair Credit Reporting Act in order to preserve the, uh, in order to ensure that states can't pass laws that would interfere with the national market that has developed in the credit industry. And um, so Congress, uh, Congress acted in response to that and overhauled the Fair Credit Reporting Act, which, w- which gave us, of course, the FACT Act, which you referred to earlier, which has a lot of important rights for identity theft victims and, and consumers. And the, the reason for that, the reason that the FCRA was amended in that way was that there was a bit of a there's probably some horse trading going on in the legislative process, but there was also a sense that as long as Congress was opening up the Fair Credit Reporting Act uh, to extend these preemptions of state law, Congress also should, should take a look at updating the Fair Credit Reporting Act more generally to address new issues like identity theft, um, which in 2002 and 2003 was still a fairly new issue to it to address these new issues that have arisen since the Fair Credit Reporting Act was enacted way back in 1970. So you had to make sense of all this and make it work for consumers, didn't you? <laughs> right. And, you know, there's a real challenge with the, the, the Fair Credit Reporting Act, when it was enacted in 1970, was a very simple law um, and almost elegant in its simplicity. And the thing about it that was most remarkable was that it gave to consumers meaningful privacy rights, rights to access their information and dispute information that they found to be, that they believed to be inaccurate or incomplete. Um, You know, this is back in 1970. This is before there was any notion of privacy legislation more generally. We didn't have Gramm-Leach-Bliley Act until 1999. So this was really 30 years ahead of its time, the Fair Credit Reporting Act. And the thing that's amazing about it is that it worked. I mean, it really, and it still works, to balance consumers' privacy rights with the rights, or not the rights, but the need of business to obtain relevant information about consumers in order to provide them with the products and services that that they're asking for. And it's amazing that it works because it, it, if consumers were to have the ability, for example, to exclude information from their credit file that was accurate, right. it wouldn't work. Because what would happen then is that those, those, that, that minority of consumers, those, those few consumers who don't really have any intention of repaying their bills, would be able to game the system. And so the whole system would be degraded, and that, that can't work that way, nor can it work if consumers have to consent in order to have their credit report pulled. Um, and, and that it's, it's, 
it's remarkable that the system has grown and almost organically to the point where it has where you, Mari, or I can walk out on a Saturday, Saturday afternoon and in 15 minutes we can buy a new car. Right. Amazing. Yes. You know, $25,000 car and I can get credit for it because these three national credit bureaus have comprehensive information about me. And yes, there are real privacy concerns with that, and those need to be addressed. But on the other hand, the benefits to consumers are remarkable. And it got more complex when they made some amendments. What was it, 1990? I forgot what year. Six. 1996, that's right. Right. So then it got more complex, right? It got more complex, and it probably, and there were changes that were made that were. Um, some changes were made at the request of consumer advocates, others at the request of industry. Some were probably consensus amendments. This is back in 1996. And, uh, but, 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 you know, it was, it was probably changed for the better. Um, the 2003 amendments, the FACT Act amendments, are, I think that the statute became better it was during the FACT Act as well, but because the process was so fast and because there was so much at stake, you find that a lot of the provisions that Congress added were not particularly well thought through, and we see that, I think, a little bit with this red flags rule that we've been talking about over the last couple of, over the last couple of months. Um, you also see various provisions that really don't belong in the Fair Credit Reporting Act. For example, there's a provision, I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with it, that requires uh, merchants who accept credit cards to truncate the credit card number on the, uh, and the expiration, expiration date on, mm-hmm. on the receipt. It's a terrific idea, of course, and it, in fact, is, was already a requirement imposed by Visa and MasterCard. Right. Very good idea. Um, putting it in the Fair Credit Reporting Act probably not such a good idea, you know, because it applies to tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, probably millions of merchants across the country, um, little mom and pops who have, who've never pulled a credit report, never provided information to a credit reporting agency, have nothing to do with the credit reporting system, and suddenly there's this fairly precise requirement imposed on them by the Fair Credit Reporting Act. And it really came out of the blue for a lot of merchants, and it created... Well, they were uh, never subject to the FCRA before that time. And I'm sorry? I said that's because they were never subject to that, that F, to the Fair Credit Reporting Act before that time. So, it, like you said, it, it kind of blindsided them. Uh, absolutely. So, I mean, the, traditionally, the Fair Credit Reporting Act applies to three types of people. People, credit bureaus. Right. Companies who provide information to the credit bureaus and companies who use the credit reports. So, you know, those... those and, are and, three, consumers, and consumers. And consumers. But right. those are the three um, bi- types of businesses on which the Fair Credit Reporting Act imposes obligations. Right. And then consumers, of course, have rights. Um, and they have... And unfortunately, right. they also, under FACTA, they, got, they have some obligations in, to um, enable, to, enable them to enforce those rights. You know, like certain things that they have to do, the the burdens that they have to do, that they have to get a, a an identity theft report, they have to complete an right. affidavit, they have to provide evidence of where they live. So they, you know, they right. also have some obligations under right. FACTA. Yeah. Well, in, in in order to in order to affect the rights that they're given, so in order to block bad fraudulent information in a right. credit report, you're going to need to be able to prove that you really are a victim. Right. Um, to the satisfaction of the credit bureau or the bank or whomever you happen to be dealing with. Right, right. Right. So all, all of that is all of that is true. But the 2003 amendments were a substantial overhaul, and they have had some sort of mixed results and maybe unintended consequences. Yeah, and we can talk about those. I'd like to talk a little bit about the red flag rules because we have businesses driving by who might be subject to that. And we also have students that might be wondering about what what is this all about? What are the red flag rules? So we have people listening who are privacy people. I think there is a lot of confusion about the red flag rules. Let's kind of talk about what they are. I know when and you were really involved with all this during FACTA, but there was a real issue of 
suspicious activities that would take place that that creditors should have noticed. Where, and I guess the best example that I can tell my audience is when I was a victim of identity theft back in 1996, my imposter had applied for credit using my social security number, which she had gained, which I never knew her, by the way. She got my name and my social security number, and she had seen my name in the Daily Journal, which is the legal newspaper for the state of California, and was able to access my credit report through where she worked. Anyway, long story short, when she applied for credit, she applied for credit at an address that I never lived at. So when the first creditor that issued her a $10,000 credit card would have pulled my credit report, they would have seen an address in another city in another county in California that wasn't anywhere near mine. And that would have should have been a red flag to them that there was an address discrepancy, but they didn't do anything about it. They issued credit within, you know, I think a week or something like that. <laughs> so that's an, a, a good example of what a red flag is. When you see something that doesn't make sense, it's just, in you know, incongruent with who this person is or the credit report is different from the application that should be something that raises your eyebrow and says, well, let's look into this f- more carefully. Isn't, is that helpful to you? In yes, terms- um, I, I, it is helpful. I think that that's an excellent example of what a red flag is. And in back again in 2003, Congress was concerned about identity theft, among other things, when it was amending the Fair Credit Reporting Act. And there was this idea that certain creditors didn't pay enough attention to those types of indicators of identity theft in that the creditor, whether it's a credit card issuer or a car dealer or uh, you know the, the local department store that's giving you a $500 credit card and you can get 10% off that day. You know all of that is all of that is credit and it's and there was an idea that creditors were too quick to issue credit. In particular, there was this rumor, and I don't believe it was really ever proven, but I think that there was enough to it that people believed it. There was a rumor that creditors paid no attention to fraud alerts in credit reports. So uh, prior to the FACT Act, you could call TransUnion or Experian or Equifax, and if you thought you were an ID theft victim, and you could say, I want to include in my credit report an alert that says, do not grant credit to Andrew Smith unless you call me at this right. telephone number. Right. Um, and there was this idea that, you know, that, and, and the credit bureaus extended that right to consumers voluntarily. So they volunteered that to consumers. And there was this idea that that's a pretty effective method to fight ID theft, but that the creditors were not paying attention. Which is which alert. is true from many of the victims that I spoke to. They'd tell me that they had a fraud alert on their credit report, yet creditors, and not all of them, but there were creditors that were still issuing credit with it, just ignoring that. So you're right. right. Mm-hmm. Well, but there's a tension here, right? Because yeah. we all rely on convenient credit. I rely on the ability to go out on Saturday afternoon and buy that $25,000 car. Maybe I'm, being, maybe I'm too reliant on it, but there is this idea that I want credit to be convenient. And of course, the, 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 the business, the vendor, the car salesman or whomever it might be, they also want credit to be convenient because they want to make the sale. Exactly. And it's, so there is a, there is a tension. And so what, what, what Congress did is it passed a couple of different protections for, cons- for consumers. One is it required that creditors pay attention to a fraud alert when it's in the credit report, that they do something to verify the individual's identity when they see that fraud alert in the credit report. The second thing addressed your problem specifically, which was this potential, you know, this address discrepancy, as you described it, and it required the credit bureaus to notify the user of the credit report, you know, the the bank or whomever, uh, that there was this discrepancy in the address, that the address that Experian has in its file is different than the address that the bank provided to Experian to pull the credit report. Um, So Experian needs to notify the creditor of those address discrepancies, and the creditor needs to pay attention to those and needs to make sure it's pulled the credit report for the right person. 
Um, the third thing, the third item is this red flags rule that you that you referred to, and it's much more open-ended. And what the red flags requirement said was that the the banking agencies and the Federal Trade Commission should make a rule that gives guidance to creditors about how they can spot potential identity theft and how they should respond to potential identity theft when they see those those markers or those red flags. Um, and, and that was much more open-ended, and it took the agencies a very long time to make that rule. And now it was made final uh, about this time. The rule was made final about this time in 2007, and it became effective for banks in late 08 and the FTC for those entities that are overseen by the FTC who you know basically anybody who's not a bank um, the FTC has can, has been pushing that effective date out and out and out um, until right now it's it's effective November 1 of 2009 and the reason that the FTC has been pushing that date is because there's been so much controversy it turns out that the red flags rule, which is designed to apply to people who are creditors, quote unquote, applies to just about everybody. Right. Um, you know, anybody who uh, provides goods or services and bills in arrears. So the FTC has said that me, uh, you know, I am. And me. <laughs> and you. Right. Uh, you, you bill for your services at the end of the month. You provide your services and you bill at the end of the month. Right. Therefore, you are. What the FTC says is you are granting your customers, your clients, the right to defer payment. And you say, baloney, <laughs> you know, I want payment when I want payment. And right. I do this as a convenience to me and because I'm prohibited by state, by state ethical rules from collecting payment before I provide services. So what, what am I supposed to do? Right. I mean, even someone like an interior designer who does work during the month and then at the end of the month will bill you. I mean, anyone who is a consultant who does that would be considered a creditor under this expanded definition. That's right. And and don't even get me started on people who <laughs> offer terms or, you know, 30 days net, um, because that that really does then start to look like credit. But everybody does it. And so everybody's covered by this rule. So the FTC has a hard road to hoe because they're going to have to be regulating millions and millions of companies, and they just can't do it. And and you know that from working at the FTC. You don't have enough resources. And the reality, and you and I talked about this on on the show, that it makes no sense because you want them to focus on the credit, the real creditors issuing credit, because they are the ones that have had, that have been, the ones issuing the credit to the fraudsters. They're the ones that have the real major issues. So if they're just overloaded with every little guy down the street, they're just not going to be able to do it. It's it's not going to have much enforcement. But let's talk for those people who are driving by who really are creditors or who are going to be subject to the rule. Let's talk about what that means in terms of having their identity theft prevention program. Let's talk about what the requirements are. Well, First, you need to look at the accounts that you offer. And when I say accounts that you offer, look at your relationships with your customers and who your customers are. For example, do you sell your services to individuals for their own personal family household use? So it's easiest for me to think of a lawyer, but let's say that I, um, you know, I'm a solo practitioner and I provide estate planning services to, to families. Um, then, you know, I, then I offer my services to consumers and, and those, um, are very likely to be considered to be covered by the, by the rule. But even if I offer my services to businesses, small businesses, yeah, or to big businesses, or big businesses, right. Um, you need to conduct what's called, uh, you need to conduct a risk assessment to determine if these types of relationships present a reasonably foreseeable risk of identity theft. And when we're talking about identity theft, what we mean is fraud committed using another person's means of identification. So classic identity theft is what happened to you, Mari, where um, someone using uh, Mari Frank's means of identification uh, goes into, you know, your, your ID, your social, your name, 
um, goes into a bank and gets a credit card. Or, or does it online. <laughs> or does online. it through the mail, right? It could be anywhere. Right. Exactly. Uh, or, you know, through a car dealer. And, right. and so that's, they're committing fraud using your means of identification, classic ID theft. So you look at that in the context of your commercial accounts. And you think, well, um, you, you know, but we're talking here about a company. We're not talking about uh, an individual. We're not talking about someone coming in and pretending to be Andrew Smith. But as it happens, identity theft can encompass using a, a company's means of identification as well. And so someone could, uh, you know, walk into your bank and say, I'm here from XYZ development company, and I want to borrow a million dollars to develop an apartment building downtown. And turns out that, in fact, they're not from XYZ, or they don't have authority to act on behalf of XYZ, and that would be identity theft. Um, so it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily have to apply only to uh, individual relationships. And that's a really important point, Andrew, because we're getting more and more where people find out that someone has used their name and opened up businesses that are fraudulent. So that's a very good point. And especially we're seeing more with business identity theft credit cards that won't show up on a credit report so that the victim doesn't find out until it gets to collection. So, so it is a very important point. So in the case of the credit card, just to clarify, so someone applies for a credit card in the name of my small business. Yeah. Okay. So, so somebody says I'm Andrew Smith, and here's my and here's my social, and I and I opened up this a store selling scuba diving equipment, or I opened up whatever. I I have this online business, all right, and I want a credit card for it. So I get a credit card, and the credit card is in the name of my my name, but really for my business. And so that card is now not it's not going to be. Uh, reported to the credit bureaus because it's a business credit card. It's going to be reported, if at, if at all, to Dun and Bradstreet. Mm-hmm. And, and who pulls their D and B? And well, well, and you wouldn't, and, and wouldn't, you wouldn't even, even know. know. You would not know until later when you find out you're a victim. But I've had many victims just this year who have had these business credit cards that never appear on their credit report. You know, when we look back later, we see some inquiries. That's the only place we'll see it is in the inquiry section. But we'll never see the account. And we'll only see it after it's been in effect a long time. A lot of money's been lost and it goes to collections. So that's why I said it was really important that you brought up this point because we're seeing a lot of that right now, a lot of it. Well, that, that is, um, that, that's, that's fascinating. I didn't realize that. I do think that in some instances, particularly for a small business credit card, that there will be that the bank will report on the individual to the credit bureau, particularly where an individual co-signs or guarantees, because that's really what a small business credit card is in most instances. You know, I, I actually I've seen a lot of those that they haven't, and and they probably would have a right. choice to do that, mm-hmm. but but they don't, and and the fraudsters know this, and so they know that they will have a longer period of time to use that card. Right. So it, um, I, I tell people never get a business credit card, even if you have your own card. You know, if you're a big business, obviously you have to. But if you're a small business, always just use your personal credit card and use that segregate. So I, I use my American Express for business. I use my Visa for personal. I use my MasterCard for personal so that you can at least have a, have a clear accounting that you're not mixing oranges and apples. But it is not a, always a great idea because you won't see it on your credit report most of the time. So do the fraudsters make minimum payments in order to stretch out the Yes, they may ma- that's exactly right. And they make minimum payments from other accounts that they have in your name. <laughs> so they use like the convenience checks to do it and they keep it going as long as they can or like you said they'll make minimum payments for a while and then right. it goes into collections. And they they won't find you because the address is usually different that they're going to use. But yeah, I had a guy who found out Oh, my goodness, there were several business accounts in his name that didn't appear in his credit report. And, um, and we're talking about almost $100,000 that, that he found out about later. And another one right now that I'm working with is $77,000. So, yeah, it's a problem. Right. Let me and- just introduce you again because if you're driving by and you hear this articulate 
wonderful man from from Washington D.C. You want to know who he is? And we're speaking with Andrew M. Andrew M. Smith, who's a partner in Morrison Forrester's Washington D.C. law office. Uh, he consults various financial institutions on the full range of consumer financial services law and all sorts of issues with regard to the Fair Credit Reporting Act and the Gramm-Leach-Bliley Act and the Equal Credit Opportunity Act. He is just brilliant. And he came from working at the Federal Trade Commission. So he knows all the ins and outs and how all this legislation comes about. And, and he's just terrific. So let's get back to you now. Let's talk a little bit um, uh, more about uh, privacy, though, because I, I think it, the Federal Trade Commission has really done a lot of work with the issue of consumer privacy. So what is privacy? Well, I think that people frequently think of privacy and data security together in, as, as part of the same topic. And, and I know that you, Mari, frequently cover uh, identity theft issues, which really is a lot about data security, you know, keeping data that, that businesses might have about individuals, keeping it safe. But when I think of privacy, I, I think of it generally as distinct from data security. Right. In, insofar as, you know, a privacy law might be a law that limits what a business can collect, what information a business can collect about me, or it might limit um, the way the people to whom the business can disclose that information or the circumstances under which it can be disclosed. Uh, or it might limit the way that a business can use the information that it collects about me. And so what, what privacy is really is distinct from data, as distinct from data security is, um, you, you know, w- w- what are the rules? What can you do with information? What can't you do with information? Data security, on the other hand, is in many ways much more simple um, and maybe at the end of the day more complex, but it's, you know, it, assuming that you have the data, assuming that you have data about me for a legitimate purpose, you need to keep it safe. Right. And, and, so, you, and so what we get with data security requirements are um, oftentimes much more specific. You know, you need to encrypt the data or you need to have firewalls to protect the data um, uh, you know, or or you need to destroy data as as long you know as soon as you don't need it anymore. Um, whereas uh, whereas privacy is much more establishing rules for what businesses can and can't do with data. Sometimes they overlap. For example, with social security number restrictions, there are a lot of states now that restrict what businesses can and can't do with social security numbers, and that's frequently mo- motivated by a data security concern. The right. idea that you know social is sort of the key, or could be the key, to obtaining um, credit and other products and services in my name, and so they want, and so so legislators legitimately want to to sort of stem the the, the flow of social security numbers. Right, and you know I, I love the adage that says that you can have you can't have privacy without security, really. And, but you can have security without privacy. So, in other right. words... <laughs> well, that's an excellent point. I've yeah. heard the first part of that, but not the second. Yeah. Right. So, so, but, you know, privacy, though, is... Data security, everyone pretty much agrees on. You know, if there is sensitive information, information that could do me harm if the wrong person were to get it, then everyone pretty much agrees data security is important, and data security is a good thing, and we need to keep data safe. I mean, they might disagree about the um, about the specifics. You know, what's the best way to keep it safe, right? And how prescriptive do the rules need to be, or should you just let me decide for myself how how to keep data safe? Um, but privacy is much more subjective, and I frequently feel you know I I, I am really interested in privacy issues, sort of academically and from a legal perspective. From a personal perspective, I'm not very sensitive to privacy issues. You know, I'm, I'm perfectly willing to share my information with someone if I think that they're going to offer me some product or service in which I'm interested. Right, and that they're going to use it for only that purpose. In other words, they're not going to give it to everybody else to use it at their own discretion. But, yeah, you, but you know, no. you have to kind of trust them. Like, okay, yeah, if I get this service, if I give you this stuff, and 
you know, I'm going to trust that you're not going to give it to a fraudster. You're going to, you're going to really take care of it. And, you know, if I trust you not to share it with anybody else, use it for the purpose that you collected it for, right? Well, you go a little further. (laughs) What is the purpose for which they collected it? So, you know, they, they collect the, the bank collects information from me so that it can provide me with the services that I've requested so that it can provide me with a credit card. Okay, that's fine. Right. But what if, what if at some point in the future, the bank looks at that information and says, gee, you know, um, Andrew really has too much money in his deposit account right now, and he really might benefit from knowing that we have excellent offers for annuities. And, and I think that he would be interested in that kind of an offer. Okay, you know, but you already have I'm a trusted okay relation. That. Yeah, but that's not giving it to really somebody else. They're saying well, to you, you know, that's, I guess that's where we differ is if I don't mind that. If, I, if I'm, if i you know, with a bank, my bank says, hey, Mari, I've got a, a really great liquid CD for you that you might be interested in. That's okay because I already have an established relationship and they're telling me about it. Even if they outsource it, if they say we've got something, if they come to me, I already have an established relationship. They haven't shared it any, with anybody else yet. I'm okay with that. I really am. Well, what I, about I, if they yeah. say, well, we don't offer CDs, but our trusted business partner does. Well, and then so I would we say, tell me Mari's what they've got. Yeah, well, if they ask me, they might say, Mary, are you interested? We can give your name or we can give you their name. And I would say, give me their name and I'll look it over and then I will contact them. So right. I, I guess... You know that it doesn't work that way and that, they, and that marketing, you know, you, you and I... I actually will respond to marketing every once in a while, but I'll respond to, you know, maybe one out of 200 or 300 solicitations that I get. You know, it's just whenever the feeling moves me. If the, if the letter happens to be in, the, in, in my mailbox, when I'm thinking, gee, I really need to get a better rate on my deposits. I really right. need a CD. Then I'll see it and I'll think, aha, here it is. Right. Perfect. You know, just in time. Whereas if I sort of file it away in the back of my head, I'm never going to act on it. And and the and the financial institutions know that, and I know that, and that's okay with me. I guess it's okay. And again, it gets back to that whole issue which you're familiar with with Graham Leach Bliley, which is that you at least with um, you have a right to opt out of having your information shared. Of course, with regard to affiliates, uh, you don't, except in California. <laughs> right, California. We did pass a law that we had to, that we just got it. You know, after a big lawsuit, you're familiar with that. But our right. our SB one, we we said, okay, all right. So we should have the right to say that we don't want third parties to get our information, which everybody has that right. You know, to opt out of having third parties be share, sharing our information. But under Graham Leach Bliley, and you can stop me if you want, because I know you're more familiar with it than I am. But under Graham Leach Bliley, it says that if you have uh, information with a bank. A bank who has affiliates with 50 million other places that they can share it and you don't have a right to opt out. However, California passed a law that there was some big brouhaha about that says that you do have a right to opt out. And after several years of litigation, we were able to get that, yes, in California, California citizens have a right to opt out of having their information shared with affiliates, right? Right. But a couple of thoughts on that first. Okay. For sharing with third parties in California, it also is opt-in, right. which I think is very different than opt-out. I agree with you that if you, it, it, particularly with respect to sharing with unaffiliated third parties, if you really don't want that to happen, right. then you ought to be able to say, no, I don't want that to happen. Right. Um, but in California, the rule is opt-in, right. which I think changes the landscape completely because I, my guess and I'm only speaking from my own personal experience, but also from some empirical evidence about the number of people who actually do opt out, is that most people don't opt one way or the other. There are some people who probably really want to get that marketing, and so they're going to opt in. There are other people who really don't want to get that marketing, and they're going to opt out. And then there's sort of the rest of us. Well, who don't understand it? The big middle. Well, maybe they don't understand it. Maybe they do understand it. And, and they've decided not to act on it, or maybe they don't care. That's true. And it could be, yeah. When you change it to opt-in, you've changed that. Now you, 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 you've flipped it on its head. You've changed the default. The default right now is 
we're going to share unless you tell us not to. Except in California for, for in financial, California. yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and now, though, what California, and, and so GLB said, okay, if you really care about this, then we'll give you the choice. And you can, and it's, and we're not going to make it an illusory choice. You know, we're we're going to uh, we're going to have an 800 number. We're going to have a checkbox you can click off. It's not as though we're going to make you write a letter to us and direct us not to share your information. You know, there will be a real choice, and you really will have a reasonable opportunity to opt out of of this type of sharing. And we'll tell you about that every single year. And, and and when so though so if you didn't if you missed the notice this year you'll get it next year and you can opt out. But a and lot of people that really that don't I, understand those privacy. You know, a lot of those uh, privacy notices that we get every year under Gremlich Play they're really not very intelligible. I know a lot well, of people that I speak to don't understand them. They don't. They really don't get them. They throw it away. They think it's junk mail, and so they really don't get it that much. So, um, but I well, have to tell you from, from, from somebody who is a privacy expert on, you know, for cases, and I do believe in privacy, I do opt in. I do opt in for companies that I really want to do business with, and I like what they do, and I do opt in. So maybe I'm, I'm a weirdo, but I do opt in for those that I feel really comfortable with for companies that I really trust. Have so, you been getting a lot of opt-in notices in California? Um, yeah, there's, Yeah. I, th- I do get opt-in notices. Because I generally, I, I have not seen any opt-in notices. What I've seen, you know, people just don't give any notice and they don't share, right? And so they, they're not, but they're not going to give, bother giving the opt-in notice because they anticipate that they're not going to get a lot of takers because, as I say, people don't opt in or out. Um, but, you, 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 but you I mean, it. but you're right. I mean, we do want to hear about great offers, and, and that's really valuable. I think what gets a little scary, at least from my perspective, is if you didn't have the right to opt out or if companies can share with their affiliates, there's always this fear that if your bank happens to be affiliated with your life insurance company or your health insurance company or something, there's that fear that somehow that could be you know, uh, shared in such a way that maybe you won't get that life insurance policy, or maybe if they find out that, you know, something is going on with you that they might be uh, somehow not give you a mortgage or something. If there's too much sharing go on going on and they know too much, maybe you'll be denied benefits that you wouldn't have been denied had they not shared that information. Okay. A couple of reactions. One, that's really speculative. There's been a lot of talk about that over the years, but, but the banks have always said, we don't do that. Second, you could actually share that information. If it, if it was to deny me a loan, you could actually share that information under the California law. It's only when you want to share information for marketing purposes that you have to give me right. a doubt. Right, um, so right. And, and, but more to the point, if that's what we're afraid of, if mm-hmm. we're afraid that a bank is going to use information from its health insurance affiliate to deny me a mortgage, you know, I have information with my health insurer that, you know, I have some sort of a dread disease and I've got six months to live and I go into the bank and I apply for a mortgage and the bank says, nothing doing, you know, you're a goner. I'm not going to loan you the money. Well, they're never going to tell you that. <laughs> well, they're not going to tell you that. But what you do is you prohibit that. You prohibit the use of that information for that bad purpose. And, in fact, there is a specific prohibition that was right. added by the FACT Act to say you can't use medical information. I don't care where exactly. you got it, whether you got it from your affiliate or from somebody else. Right. You can't use it to make a lending decision. Right. And, and so that's the way you address that. The, the, affil- the idea that we would limit the sharing among affiliated companies seems to me to be a little bit nutty in that I, when I do business with Citibank, I do business with Citibank, and it's not, you know, Citibank, because of its regulatory constraints, has to organize its different affiliates in different subsidiaries. You know, it can't all, it can't under one, you know, within the bank, it can't offer securities and insurance and, um, and annuities and all of these other products. It has to offer them through separate subsidiaries. So I understand that, and it's a diversified financial institution, and if they want to use information about me, to try to sell me things, you know, share it among them, that's okay. Because if I don't like it, I can tell them to stop. Mm-hmm. 
And if I really don't, and they will, and if I really don't like it, I can say, forget it. I'm not going to do business with you anymore, city. Right. And so it's very different than the idea of sharing with third parties because that's much more, um, that's much less transparent. You might never know how that third party got your name or information. You might never know that they got that information from your bank. And so you might not be able to vote with your feet, you know, and say, I'm done with you, City. I don't want to do business with you anymore. You, you, you share my information too much. I'll tell you what's interesting. Before we had SB1 be, you know, uh, re, reinstated, I had refinanced my house. And when I refinanced my house, um, they informed me of who their, their affiliates were and they were going to share. And it had been interesting because for years I had worked very hard to get my name off all the pre-approved offer lists. And um, it, was, it took me years to, to finally get not only the credit reporting agencies to stop giving me pre-approved pre- offers, but all of my creditors and the State Bar of California and everybody. I worked on it so I wasn't getting pre-approved offers. And then when I refinanced my house, all of the sudden, <laughs> and, and the reason I knew it came from them is because I used my middle initial when I re- uh, refinanced my house, I started getting literally hundreds of these new pre-approved offers from all these affiliates. There were about 10 pages of affiliates that were uh, disclosed to me (laughs) when I refinanced my house that they shared with. And um, it was just, it was very frustrating for me. I just felt like I worked so hard to try and and gain back that ability of not getting these pre-approved offers. That doesn't mean that I don't get information from my own banks and I don't, and I look at those and I, you know, spend a lot of time looking at those things. But it just was real frustrating to me because there was so much sharing. It's so almost like third was, parties. It, it, and those affiliates were, that list of affiliates was disclosed to you as a part of their privacy, as a part of their Graham Lynch Bliley Act privacy policy? That was part of the whole package in escrow that, and I think I had asked for who are your affiliates, and then they gave me about 10 pages there of their affiliates. Okay. Yeah. And then And then you started, you had opted out of, pre-screening? Yes, so you had, yes. You had called the credit bureaus. I had written a letter. Yes, I had written a letter to credit to all the credit bureaus saying okay. I want to be permanently opt, opt out. For, for years, I hadn't been getting any, and then I suddenly started getting them again, and I was on the permanent opt out. So they weren't being sold by the credit bureaus. See, that's the thing. Right. A lot of people don't realize when you call 888-5-OPT-OUT, you're asking the credit bureaus to not sell your name on promotion to the various creditors who might want to issue you credit based on on your credit worthiness. And um, so that's the credit bureaus. So I wasn't getting it from the credit bureaus. And then you'll also notice when you look at your privacy notices from your various creditors, they'll tell you that they're going to share information unless you opt out mm-hmm. if you're in another state. And so um, that that they have the right to share. And even your State Bar Association will share. <laughs> it's amazing. Every association you're with will share and well, sell your they, information. They are often the worst offenders. Oh, yeah, they the are. Banks, but it's the alumni associations. Sure. And, uh, Absolutely. So like I had that. finally gotten off all of those. Then I refinanced my house, and all of a sudden, I'm getting a ton of those all again. And that's basically from being sold through all these various affiliates. Because you can, if you're with GE Financial, for example, just think about how many affiliates that they have. So, you know, I'm not saying that they're they're malicious. It's just, to me, when you talk about different level of privacy, to get all those in the mail and then worry about that and how it might be used by somebody who's stealing my mail. I, You know, I'm probably more sensitive than other people since I have lived identity theft and I live it with all these victim clients that I d- deal with every day. So it's just, you know, it's all in our experience, isn't it? Our perspective is so much uh, influenced by the experiences that we have in life that um, we have different levels of privacy. But I wanted to get to the issue of the privacy regulation because I know you're so familiar with what's going on in Washington. What about these roundtables on privacy issues? What's happening with the FTC? Well, the FTC has announced. Actually, one thing quickly, Mari. Okay. Um, you had said it just it just happens to be some news that's relevant. You had said uh, earlier that you talk with a lot of smart people who are you know who know about privacy issues, and they get they these annual notices from their bank, 
and they don't know what the heck they say. They can't read them, that they're unintelligible. And that has been a criticism of notices for a very long time. Right. And, the, um, and, and what just happened this week was that the bank agencies and the Federal Trade Commission, who have been researching how to give a better notice, yes. consumer, doing consumer research, going out to shopping malls all across the country and, and asking people, you know, can you read this? Do you understand what it says? Um, they've designed what they feel is a better notice. And, they've, and it's more like a, you know, a nutrition label on a box of cereal or something like that. Uh, and they have said that banks can use this and, and, a, and they can comply with the, but by using this notice, they can comply with the federal privacy requirements. And so that's just something that happened this week. And it was just issued uh, uh, by the, by the, Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation and the other bank agencies and the FTC we anticipate will be following along in the next several weeks. But one of the reasons those notices were so inscrutable was because the agencies took it upon themselves to provide what they referred to as sample clauses. And the agency said, if you use this language in your notice, you can... Um, you can comply with the Gramm-Leach-Bliley Act. And the sample notices <laughs> frequently the the, the culprit. The worst. <laughs> the worst. And I mean, it's not because they didn't, it's not, you know, I don't want to blame They just you. had lawyers write them like us. <laughs> right. It was you and me and a bunch of people like us sitting around a table saying, how can we say this? So you get right. notices that say things like, we will not share your information except as permitted by law. Right. Which, what does that mean? Yeah. And and permitted by law happens to be a loophole you can drive a truck through. And, <laughs> and so it's not... It's not descriptive. It doesn't help consumers understand what the scope of their rights are. So the agencies have revised the notices, and hopefully in a way so that it will be more understandable. But now, to the roundtables. Okay. Notice is part of this, is, is part of the problem here. Um, the FTC has announced a series of three roundtables to be held in uh, two in Washington and one in California uh, over the next maybe six months or so. And what the FTC has said is that it wants to revisit the idea of privacy regulation in this country and that it thinks that the way that we regulate privacy now isn't quite working. And one of their complaints is notice. Mm -hmm. They say these notices are you know, regulatory. Uh, well, I was speaking with someone at the FTC the other day who referred to them as cover-your-ass notices <laughs> and that nobody reads. It's okay. legalese. Right. You know, it's consigned to some little corner of your website or to, you know, this or, or to be, being stuffed in a statement uh, once a year. And people get them. It's gobbledygook. They don't read them. They don't understand them. It's not meaningful. So what do we do about it? Um, the second issue is that the FTC chairman has said that he's not so sure that the the approach articulated by the prior administration is really working. And what the prior administration said, this is Howard Beals, the fellow who I, who I mentioned earlier, right. and the then chairman of the FTC, a fellow named Tim Muris, uh, M-U-R-I-S, they came up with an idea that I thought was actually pretty ingenious. And what they said is, we really shouldn't be focusing on the collection of personal data or the disclosure of personal data, what we ought to be focusing on are harms, specific harms that are, are related to the use of data, and we should prevent those. So, for example, you had mentioned earlier, Mari, that there is a concern that a bank might obtain information from a health insurance company and use it to deny credit. Right. Okay, mm -hmm. then we prohibit that. Right. The classic uh, example of the harm-based approach was do not call. Right. You know, there is a consumers don't like being called at the dinner hour. Now, there's a question, is that really harm or not? You know, it's, if it is harm, it's fairly intangible. But the FTC wasn't bothered by that and said, you know what, consumers hate it, so that's all I need to know. It's harm. And so what we're going to do is we're going to give them a choice. Uh, and we're going to permit them to have their number included on the do not call list. Now, that's an example of opt-out that has worked famously. Exactly. So when people, when people care, they opt out. And when they understand, that was pretty simple. Do not call. Well, so simple. I mean, do not, 
I mean, you maybe, can't get more simple than that. So maybe more, you know. maybe more simple than you know. You can direct us not to share information with third parties. Yeah, third party affiliates. Exactly. Somebody might not even know what affiliate means. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. maybe maybe that's true. Maybe it's just the nature of the beast that this that this is complicated. So um, it's so a good what? idea to to really look at all the harms. I mean, it's it. I think it's a very good idea to try it that way because, like you said. Um, it, it doesn't appear necessarily to be working with the way we've been doing it. So let's look at what are considered harms and, and address those. Well, what the FTC says now, though, what the chairman has said, is that he's a little uneasy about this harm-based approach to regulation mm-hmm. for three reasons. One is, and, and these are legitimate, you know, and, and, and I, I don't agree with the, I, I don't agree that they are problems, but I agree that this is, this is a result of the harm-based approach. First problem, he says, is that the harm is, um, you know, by focusing only on harm, you're focusing primarily on tangible types of um, t- t- tangible harm that can be visited on a consumer rather than this more intangible and subjective harm. So, right, like you, know, you and example, I were talking about, the difference about how our sensitivities, right. Yeah. That so, makes so sense. You, so you don't want your information shared with a third party. I don't care. Yeah, exactly. So what, who's to say what's harm? Right. Um, so they say, well, you know, we really, the FTC says we really need to think more about these intangible types of harm. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second issue is that... Um, it's very reactive, the harm-based approach. You have to actually have a demonstrated harm before you can act. So uh, to harken back to your example about the use of health information, there actually wasn't anybody who could show when, when this was when this legislation was going on back, you know, now five Right, it was ago. just a worry. Yeah, yeah. yeah just yeah. a worry. No one could show that this was actually happening. So the harm-based approach doesn't work there because you've right. got to have a harm. You can't right. just have uh, a theory. Um, and but of course, people get insurance because they worry. So you know what I mean. True. So there is there is a it's in some people's minds it's tangible. I am preventing something. I am preventing something by establishing this rule. Yeah. Well, right. Preventing something that. But although, but what the harm? The person who advocates the harm based approach would say is, you know what? You're right. That wait till there's a, a harm problem. But but wait till there's a harm because if we regulate without a harm. Whatever you know, when when you push the balloon in one area, something pops out somewhere else, and that you're going to have unintended consequences if you start to prohibit certain kinds of conduct. I can't tell you what they're going to be because they're unintended, right? Yeah, <laughs> they're unforeseen. Yeah. But I know that if we pass a rule that requires or prohibits something, something's got to give somewhere else. And, and, and that's fact, usually that's what, what happens. happens. Yeah, that's usually what happens with law, and that's why they come back the next year and tweak it, right? Well, or two years later. With, with with the medical stuff was yeah. that it turned HIPAA, out that it was, yeah. it was very difficult to, to, people wanted to borrow money to get LASIK surgery. Right. And suddenly you needed to consider medical information yeah. in, order to extend, in order to loan people money because I needed to know that your eyes are bad before I loan you money to get LASIK surgery. Exactly. So I'm considering medical information. Weird stuff happens. The, thir- the third uh, complaint about the harm-based approach is that it leads to what's called sectoral laws, where you have laws for certain sectors, for example, financial sector or the healthcare sector, that prote- laws that protect privacy in those sectors, but you don't have any broad, overarching privacy scheme. For and we kind of have that economy. now, though. I mean, we do have... Well, that's right. <laughs> and that it's, isn't working entirely. Well, yeah, I think it does. See, I think it's good. Somewhat. I, I think it focuses on those areas where... It focuses on those areas where people really care. People really care about financial information, about health care information, and, a, and information about kids. Yep. And we have laws for all three of those. Now, But I, I have to tell you something. We, I, would you believe I need to have you back on again? Because okay. you would not believe that we are. You're just too interesting. you got too much oh, good stuff to tell us. Coming. No, it's true. <laughs> we have to have you back again. You have to promise. Because I'm seeing the time, and Amanda's telling me it's late. So we're going to have to go. But, but we will watch for what's happening in Washington. We will have you back again real soon. And we're going to send everybody to your website. Why don't you just give your website, and uh, we'll oh. say good eve- goodbye. Mm-hmm mofo.com. Thanks so much, Mari. And thank you so much, Andrew. You're terrific. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every 
Monday from 8 to 9 a.m. right here on KUCI. Also, join us at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Visit our website. Write us emails about what's important to you about privacy in the information age. Thank you. Bye-bye. Stay private. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.